Good morning. Good to see you all. This morning we're going to be in Esther, wrapping up Esther, chapter 9 and 10, starting in verse 20. Good to see some of you back. We're small in number. Everybody's off for Thanksgiving, we understand, but part of the family's here. And so we're going to enjoy this time together. I think this should be an encouraging wrap-up message for us as we conclude Esther, a book about God's reversals and His providence. So I want to read God's Word this morning, chapter 9, beginning in verse 20, through to the end of chapter 10, which is very large. You'll notice that it's, what, three verses? But it's still profound. And then we'll pray. This is the reading of God's Word. Esther 9.20 Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far. Now, you're going, refresh me? Understand that the evil Haman had been given a thumbs up by Xerxes to make a decree that would lead to the extinction of the Jewish people. But then a counter decree came because of the canny of Esther and Mordecai, because of God's providence, that would allow the Jews to now defend themselves and defeat their enemies, which they did. And that's where we pick up now. Verse 20 again, Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, the son of Havandatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the purr, that is the lot or the die, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back upon his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim, from the word Pur, because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should, without fail, observe these two days every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, in every family, and in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai, the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter confirming Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim 
at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they established for themselves and their descendants in regard to these times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. Chapter 10. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promised and promoted. Are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of the Medes and Persia? Mordecai, the Jew, was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews, because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews." Reversals. There are a lot of different titles. It's fun to look at other people's sermons and headings on these sermons. And here are some that I appreciated this morning, but I I decided on my own. Here's a good one. After the ache, celebrate. After the ache, celebrate. That's what they're doing here. They're celebrating after the aches and pains of thinking we could be extinct. We could face our own holocaust. Or here's, here's one that really captures the main theme of the book. Silence is not absence. God's silence, you don't hear God's name mentioned once in the book. Silence doesn't mean absence, though. God's very present in this book. But here's where we're going to be this morning. And it picks up on that theme of God's providence always working behind the scenes. He's the God of reversals. That's the title this morning. The God of reversals. And I think we need to remember that he's that kind of God who can take evil and use it for good, our good, and his glory. And if you have that mindset, you'll live a different life. So I want to reread verses 20 through 22 again. I want you to see the reversal here. This is a chapter about reversals. Esther and her people were in danger. They were in despair. And by chapter 9 here, verse 20, they're celebrating deliverance. Mourning has turned to joy. Troubles have turned to triumph. He's a God of reversals. Verse 20 again. Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days, 15th days of the month of Adar, which would be like March for us. As the time, celebrate these days as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies. As a month when their sorrow was turned to joy and their mourning into days of celebration. So, but first there was trouble, right? First there was trouble, and there always is. As believers, we know that we live in a troubled world. Now, there are some worldviews that are stoic and they ignore trouble. There's no trouble. There are religions that, that focus on denying the suffering, pretend it's not there. That's not realistic. There are other approaches to trouble where we say, you know, there is trouble and there's no solution. We fall into despair. But we don't want to go to either of those extremes. We admit, we're realistic, there is suffering, there are trials, there are problems in this world, a fallen world, but there are solutions. There is a solution because we have the King of glory on our side as the people of God. We know there are solutions, and that's what we need to remember. But these people are facing trouble. Who will solve their problems? Who will deliver them from their trials? Who ultimately is the hero of the book? I know you already know the answer, but you need to hear it again. You need to be reminded of who the hero is and how he rescues his people through happenstances, through apparent circumstances. 
Through the mundane things of life, God rescues. You need to remember that. Because you go through the mundane things of life. You go through the trials of life. We need to remember that God rescues and reverses our trials and brings good out of them. You know, again, this is one of the most perilous times for God's people in the Old Testament. It's found here in Esther. About 480 B.C., the Jews, who had many of them already turned, returned to Jerusalem, as well as those who remained back in their captivity and their exile, they came under a dark shadow of an imperial edict calling for the extermination of Esther and her people, the people of Mordecai. Mordecai is, of course, you remember, the uncle, the caregiver of the orphaned Esther. They and their people could face a holocaust. Well, back in chapter 3, the evil Haman, this is the backstory. Uh, he is the guy who really got this in motion. He, he goes, and in the name of the Persian king, King Xerxes, he sets into motion this decree, an edict that cannot be revoked according to their law that these are the people who will be exterminated. Dispatches, we're told, were sent by couriers to all the king's providences with the order to destroy and kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month Adar March. That is a day that was marked for destruction, the 13th day of the month of Adar. Destruction. Despair. Not only was the edict in place, but again, as I mentioned, the despairing fact is that when a document was signed, a chronicle was signed in the king's name and with his signet ring, it could not be revoked. It had to happen. The Jew situation seems hopeless in the middle of the story. What's going to happen? The book of Esther might be called the Cinderella story, though, of the Old Testament, where this orphan Jewish girl... She finds a caregiver, Mordecai, and somehow she rises to power. She becomes the queen of Persia at a crucial time. She was queen at a time, a crucial time, a time such as this, says the passage. But while she is the heroine of the story, she certainly is. The main human character, the god of reversals, is directing everything behind the scenes. And we forget that sometimes. Have you read much of C.S. Lewis, maybe his uh, Narnia series? I love his Narnia series. Haven't read all of them. I've listened to all of them. Uh, Focus on the Family has a great audio theater of it. You should, you could watch it and listen to it on YouTube. One of my favorites is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. But my other favorite is the one called The Horse and His Boy. The horse, of course, is a talking Narnian horse. And he, his name is Bree. He often talks with his boy. His boy's name is Shasta. They're both slaves, the boy and his horse. And they're stuck in a foreign land in the story where they don't belong. They're just passing through. Well, through an amazing run of good luck, we'll use the air quotes today. Because of an amazing run of good luck, they escape back to their homelands together, the boy and his horse, along with two other escapees, a horse and her girl. Now, these four, here's what happens. They, they meet for the first time in the first place because of remarkably bad luck. They come together by bad luck, coincidence. What's the bad luck? Lions are chasing them. I hate when that happens. Lions are chasing them and they run into each other. The boy and his horse and the girl and his horse. And, and at, later in the story, 
Uh, after another exhausting journey through the desert, Shasta the boy and Bree the horse and the girl and her horse, they're chased by another set of lions, just as they're about to reach safety. It seems that things couldn't be any worse. I mean, what terrible luck, right? Well, shortly after that chase, Shasta, the boy, does succeed in his quest, and he, he gets stranded alone. He stumbles through a dense fog one day. He's hungry, he's thirsty, he's tired, he's feeling awfully sorry for himself. Until he runs into a person, a thing, a large voice. And it's hard to tell what it is in the fog, but he runs into it. And Shasta, he starts a conversation with the thing, the voice. And soon he's complaining about how unlucky he is. Feeling sorry for himself. I do that a lot. I do not call you unfortunate, says the large voice to Shasta. I don't call you unfortunate. Don't you think it's bad luck to have many lions chasing you, asked Shasta. Only one lion was chasing you, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I just told you that there were at least two, two nights where we were chased, and there was only one, said the voice. But he was swift of foot. How do you know this? Shasta, I was that lion. If you've read Narnia stories, you know Shasta is speaking to Aslan. We love Aslan. The great lion, the the son of the emperor over the sea. Aslan in the Narnia stories is the Messiah figure. He he represents Jesus in our world. Aslan explains to Shasta that he has actually been laying out Shasta's path the whole time. He's been working in his life the whole time. In fact, his whole life, unseen but always working lovingly behind the scenes, orchestrating, working. Aslan chased the four escapees because he wanted them to come together. Aslan chased them at another point to inspire a fear and a sense of speed and let's get to it attitude. Aslan was even the one who saved Shasta's life back in the story when he was just a baby. Shasta needed to know that the lion had been there the whole time, even if he was unnamed or unseen. C.S. Lewis's story points in a memorable way to, to, to what Christians call the sovereignty of God, the providence of God. It's a great comfort for the people of God. God's control and his loving can care, his loving care all the time. And even Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, recognized God's providence and sovereignty back in Daniel's book. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, where this pagan king recognizes that God rules this world and no one can keep him from accomplishing everything he purposes to do. You should go home and, and just for your devotions today, or maybe around the table, read Isaiah 46. No one can thwart God's plans. God accomplishes all that he purposes to do. That's pretty comforting if you're on God's side. If he's on your side and you're his, that's pretty comforting. So Shasta learned in this conversation with Aslan that God's silence is not absence. Someone Shasta had never met and had barely heard of was determining his path his whole life. The book of Esther is, is very much like Shasta's story. God, however, never appears in a fog to tell the characters in Esther's story, Esther's story uh, that he's arranging their details. He, he doesn't show up in that way. In fact, he never appears at all by name in the book. And yet, he appears in every line, if you're able to see it. How can this be? It's only his name that's never mentioned. It doesn't 
even show up once, but you'd, you'd have to be blind to miss this. His providence, his hand, his direction, these so-called coincidences, these happenings, these accidents. That's what we call them. He's clearly running the whole show. I love Ephesians 1, verse 11. It says, God works all things after the counsel of his will. God in eternity past went into counsel and he willed, he decreed. And all things that happen work out in accordance with his will. All things work after the counsel of his will. That makes some people uncomfortable. But I have to say, as his child, that brings me great joy and peace. The book never mentions him by name, yet his fingerprints are all over the story. We've heard that quote many times. Esther discovers that she has been placed in a position. There's a purpose in all this. She's been put in a position to preserve her people. God would use her to preserve this Jewish race through whom the Messiah would come. There's a greater purpose to all this. There's a grand story playing out in her life and behind the scenes. And God is behind the scenes, unseen, nevertheless directing it all. And that's the major theme of the book. And and that's the major theme of your life. The story of Esther is still playing out and you're a part of it. Because God is still on the throne. In other chapters, in our chapter specifically this morning, verses nine, chapter 9 and 10, the focus is on that great Jewish feast. We call it Purim. It's a celebration of the deliverance of the Jewish people, again, from the evil Haman's edict of extinction. And the Jews still keep this feast of Purim to this day. It's a memorial, again, of the deliverance and the divine re- reversal that they experienced. It went from despair to delight from mourning and despair, thinking we're done, to thinking we've been rescued and we can have joy. And so, again, before the events of chapter 9 and 10, it appears that there's no hope. An edict to exterminate the Jews is in place. It couldn't be revoked under Persian law. I guess it's kind of like uh, the, the law of the Medes and the Persians is, is like our U.S. Constitution. Americans cannot take out a pencil and, and, and an eraser and, and start erasing the Constitution's clauses or amendments. All we can do is tack on another amendment that cancels or circumscribes the the part we want to change. That is what King Xerxes is going to do for these people at the request of Esther. It would make and take another edict to be a solution to the first edict. And so the Jewish people had no hope, uh, but the story is not done. Once the edict comes that reverses the bad edict, they're still not free and clear. The the Jews still have some time to wait. A a legal permission has been given to them. You can now defend yourselves. We can't reverse the bad edict, but you can defend yourselves, and, and we'll put that in place. Hope is starting to fix itself on the horizon. But we still have to wait for that day, nine months from now, the 13th day of Adar, that was set by the faithful casting of the die, the lot, the purr, at the hand of Haman. We've got to wait. Well, when that fateful day comes, that fateful day of attack on the Jews, the Jews, with the backing of King Xerxes, they defeat their enemies. They defeat them. And the people are now safe. And they've been delivered from the immediate danger. The rest of chapter 9, verse 20 and following, though, it describes the initiating, initiating, the actual formal initiating of that Jewish feast of Purim which comes again from that Hebrew word, the plural Hebrew word, lot, per, dice. Again, named because of Haman's casting of the lot to determine the day that the Jews would be destroyed, back in chapter 3. 
And so a day of destruction now becomes a day of deliverance. So remember the spontaneous celebration that breaks out back in the early parts of chapter 9? They defeat their enemies because they've been given permission to. They defeat them, and then they break into spontaneous celebration. They party, they eat, they give gifts. They break into celebration, chapter 9, verse 17. On the 13th day of the month of Adar, they rested and made a day of fasting and gladness. This all came about as a result of their deliverance that they had experienced. But now in our section 20 through 32, what we see is that those spontaneous celebrations of verses 16 through 19 give way to a properly, formally organized festival, which is what the Jews are still celebrating to this day. God's providential reversals and deliverance. Verse 23, so the Jews took it upon themselves to establish a custom, doing what Mordecai had written to them. Now, after this formal feast is established, that's when, that's where we pick up. Here is a, another festival, really, another memorial to God's divine reversals. There are memorials all over the place. The Lord has given us a memorial. We're gonna, we're gonna celebrate this later this morning, where we take the cup and the bread to remember that Jesus bore our just Justice for us. Jesus bore the wrath of God. He absorbed it. The just anger of God due our sin, Jesus took on himself. We take the cup, and it reminds us of his blood poured out for our sins. We break the bread. It reminds us of a body that was broken because of our sin. Jesus took it in our place. A memorial. A memorial feast. A celebration. Until he comes. Remembering his reversals. He reversed our situation. So, instead of extinction, now there's exuberance. Instead of sadness, now there's a formal celebration and festival. He's the God of divine reversals. I love that God can take evil intentions and make them work for good. Don't you love that? In chapter 8 and 9, we have a legal reversal, right? We have a a legal document that goes out and says, we're going to do this every year. A legal reversal. It's wonderful. God is the God with an override button. I love Tony Evans. You ever hear Tony Evans? He's really shy. I won't go into descriptions, but he says this. He says, our God has an override button that can take Satan and what he has planned against you, the people he's raised up against you, the circumstances he's raised up against you that look like they're not in your favor, and he can come in and he can push that override button. And it may not stop the evil from being evil, but God is able so that when the enemy comes in like a flood, God will raise up the standard against them and use that evil for your ultimate good and for God's glory. I mean, if you think about this, the book of Esther really is the Old Testament version of of Ephesians 8.28. Or, I'm sorry, Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 says, and this is my favorite passage. I think I said that about most passages. But this really is my favorite one. Romans 8.28, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. He works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purposes. He works all things together for good. Not just the pleasant things, even the bad things. Cancer, financial reversal, divorce. You name it, what's the bad thing? He takes all things, he works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. He takes all things, even the bad things in your life, into his sovereign hands and he makes them into servants for your good and his glory. 
Could that be your favorite passage too? I mean, that is, that is the joy of all this. God takes some pretty tragic circumstances and he actually brings good out of it for his people. I love that our God has an override button, that he's sovereign even over evil. But there's not just a legal reversal, there's these emotional reversals as you see them going from despair to joy. Chapter 4, verse 3, had uh, been a time of great mourning for the Jewish people. Great weeping, we're told, and wailing under that first decree by Haman, they'll all be destroyed, even their children. But when that second decree comes and it's passed, that the people can defend themselves, this is what it says in chapter 8, verse 16 that the Jews experienced great, quote, happiness and joy and gladness and honor. You're crying one day. You're laughing the next. The Bible says that sorrow may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. You want that one? That's Psalm 30, verse 5. What a difference a day makes, right? Sorrow may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And this isn't a promise that when God is going to work all things together for your good, that you're going to get health and wealth and prosperity. The good in that context of Romans 8.28 is you're being made more like Jesus. Your sanctification, you becoming more like Jesus in character. So your circumstances may be terrible until the end, but God's going to use all that to refine you, to chip away at you. We, we, we saw this uh, video at youth group the other night, and it, it was a story about sanctification and how this great artist was, was taking from a great granite block and chipping away at it and made a beautiful sculpture of a, a stallion, a Mustang. And someone was admiring it and saying, how, how do you do this? And he said, I, I don't know how to explain it. I, I just chip away at everything that doesn't look like a stallion. Well, that's what our sanctification is. God's chipping away at everything in our life that doesn't look like Jesus. That's the good he's working in us. And so this isn't a promise that life's going to get easier. Life could get even worse, tougher. But you've got the God of Esther behind you, working all things together for your ultimate good and for his glory. And one day, although you're in the night, the morning's coming. The morning's coming. You may be crying today, But don't think that your sorrow will endure forever. When God's in your situation and he can work all things together for good, God can wipe those tears away and he can turn pain into pleasure and he can turn your sadness into joy. Joy, it's not tied to circumstances. He can use those trials to refine you, to make you more mature and like Jesus. He's the God of reversals. But wait, you know, the skeptic says, I mean, God really isn't even mentioned in the book. You've already said that to us several times. He's not mentioned. Aren't the real heroes of the book Esther and Mordecai? God's not even mentioned, but these human characters are. And I would say the answer is yes, they are heroes. But are they the ultimate hero? What you have to learn about good Bible interpretation is this. Every Old Testament story, the hero is always God. Because the figures always have some problem or some sin or shortcoming. They're fallen humans. God's always the hero of every Old Testament story, pointing ahead to Jesus. Let's reflect on the main characters for a second, just see what part they played in it. Let's see if they're the ultimate hero. Xerxes, the Persian king. He was, in a real sense, a deliverer of God's people. He played a part in their deliverance. He delivered the people from the trial, I mean, because Haman had pushed him to put into decree 
an irrevocable decree that would lead to the extermination of the Jews. He played a part in initiating that with Haman. He gave his authority to this evil man named Haman, and he even said this troubling phrase to Haman, do with the people as you please. Oh man, not good. Extermination would have been the outcome. In order for this course of events to be reversed though, which Xerxes was willing to work out because he found out his queen was a Jew, someone was going to have to help him and intervene and bring about this deliverance. On his own, Xerxes would not have done any of this. He's not the ultimate hero. Mordecai. I mean, at the very end of the book, he's lifted up. At one point, he was a dishonored and under a death sentence. At the end of the book, he's lifted up to the highest place in the king's kingdom. Mordecai. Uh, this is where he comes in and he helps Xerxes to see the problem. In a more profound sense, Xerxes was a deliverer of God's people in the story. Mordecai was a low-level official who became a person of influence over the queen herself. He was the guardian of Esther. He discovered an assassination plot earlier in the story that, that he reported so the king's life was saved. He did a great thing in the king's eyes. He became the queen's informer and motivation to act. He kept telling her, you've been raised up for a moment like this. Go and do the right thing. He plays a big part in the story. His faithful service to the king attracted the king's attention at just the crucial moment. He even authored the royal edict that countered Haman's earlier evil edict. So no wonder this king raises Mordecai or Mordecai to this position. And the Jews esteemed him at the end of the book. And they esteem him to this day. However, by himself, Mordecai could not have delivered the Jews. His public mourning over the potential destruction of his people at the beginning of the book would have not accomplished anything. He's, he's distraught. He's depressed. He's crying at the beginning of the book when he finds out about this evil plot. But if no one in the royal court had cared about his mourning, nothing would have happened. That's where this other person comes in who cared about his mourning and was willing to resolve the problem. It brings us to Esther. Esther, isn't she, I mean, her name's on the book. Isn't she the ultimate hero? In a real sense, she is a deliverer of God's people. She sought out the distraught Mordecai and so discovered the edict against her people. She asked for prayer and she committed herself to act. Even at the risk of her own life, she was willing to act on behalf of her people. She went, she stood, she asked. She was willing to play for high stakes, revealing her ethnic identity to her her king. I am one of the Jews. Even pointing out Haman, risky. Does the king favor Haman over me? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point out Haman's offense. And after all this, this edict threatening her people had been announced throughout the kingdom. But because of her intervention... There was this new edict for the defense and the deliverance of her people. So you could say that she really was the deliverer of her people. Now, it's true in a sense. These are human characters and they play a great part. But although all these characters occupy a royal court, none of them sit on the throne of heaven. Rather, there is a lion. The lion of Judah working behind the scenes of all this, working through all the choices made, all the circumstances, the rolling of the dice, all the characters orchestrating to rescue his people. Do you see the sovereignty and the providence of our God, that he is always the hero? Ultimately, God is the real deliverer of his people in this book, and uh, as heroic as these human characters really are, the real deliverer 
is the gracious God, the sovereign God, the providing God. He holds center stage and he holds it even in spite of the fact that he's, he's not named. Did you pay attention to that as we read through the book? Lev did a good job. He got us started. He reminded us God's not in the book by name, but his fingerprints all are over the place. Pay attention to this. Did you do that? Was it encouraging? That's why I love this book. As you see God working behind the scenes, what you think's a chance, accident, mistake, coincidence, nope, God's at work. He's unnamed, but he's not absent. Except for the Song of Psalms, Esther really is the only book where God's name is not explicitly mentioned. Yet, as Matthew Henry said, and this is the quote we've been borrowing, though the name of God be not in it, the fingers of God are. Directing many minute moments and events for the bringing about of his people's deliverance. So God's ability to accomplish his purposes, uh, despite his hiddenness, I think it actually heightens the sense of his power. He may not be named, but this is a sustained meditation on his sovereignty and his working behind the scenes. This is our Romans 8.28 in the Old Testament. According to, to many passive verbs, it's clear that God's working. Did you notice, like, look at chapter 9, verse 22. There are not active verbs, but passive verbs here throughout this, this story. Verse 22 of chapter 9. Consider the sentence, for example. The time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy, and their mourning turned, it was turned into a day of celebration. Well, who gives the Jews relief? And who turns their sorrow into joy? There's another character behind it. It's God. You may have missed it because you're looking for some dramatic role. You're looking for some spectacular intervention from God. A miracle. Now, a miracle, um, if we're being specific, a miracle is an intervention of God in the natural courses of history where he intervenes or he suspends a natural law. It's unusual. You take notice of miracles. But here God's not doing that. He's providentially working through the normal actions of normal people in the normal order of life, like he did with Joseph, like he he did in the story of Ruth. God works sovereignly with no apparent miracle. Just a lot of happenings. Just a lot of the right circumstances. Did you notice that in the book? I love this little proverb. It says, large doors swing on small hinges. Large doors swing on small hinges. The course of history is often determined by the smallest particulars. The chance meeting, an email, a letter, a conversation, an accident. The story of Esther is filled with these crucial happenings that might have looked like chance to anyone observing the events at the time, And perhaps they looked that way to you. After all, I mean, the book explains the Feast of Purim, which comes from the plural word pur, lot, dice, and the role of dice by Haman. I mean, certainly that was just a random, that's just luck, right? If you think so, you don't get this book, and you don't get our God. This is a book about, it's a remarkable story, not about accidents and consequences and mere men. Let's just tick off a couple places as we get ready to close here where you see, again, improbable things, circumstances, coincidences happening. It's really God at work. Esther just happens to be Jewish and just happens to be beautiful. She just happens to be favored by this king among hundreds of other women. 
Mordecai just happens to overhear the plot against the king's life. A report just happens to be written that chronicles this good deed by Mordecai. When Haman plots against the Jews, the die just happens to indicate a day almost a year away so they would be time for preparation. By the way, do you know Proverbs 16.33? The dice is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Esther just happens to get the king's approval to speak. It just so happens that the previous night the king has insomnia. It just so happens that to cure his insomnia, the chronicles are read. The chronicles that recount Mordecai's good act of reporting a plot against the king. Haman just happens to approach the king when the king is wondering how to honor this great Mordecai for his good deed. The gallows Haman that Haman built for Mordecai just happened to be ready when King Xerxes wants to hang the evil Haman. Eh, all just accidents, coincidence. Please remember this book when you face the next trial, when you're facing a mundane day. Every action you make could be used by God. It's used in his hands. I love that God can answer our problems with his providence. How can God get a Jewish couple in Nazareth to go to Bethlehem? Because the prophecy of Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem and not Nazareth. No problem for God. The problem is solved with his providence. God moved the heart of Herod to take a census, instructing his people to go back to their ancestral towns to get registered. The focus is now on Joseph and Mary, and they're forced to leave Nazareth and end up in Bethlehem, just in the right amount of time. The problem is answered by God's providence. How do you get a preacher to get into the heart of the Roman Empire to preach the gospel to the Gentile world and to even have audience with Caesar himself? Easy for God. His providence solves the problem. You have a man born a Jew. He's also a Roman citizen with the legal right to appeal to Caesar, which he does. You put him on a Roman grain ship. You get him arrested. Make him a prisoner. He's sent to Rome. He appeals to Caesar, and the gospel's at the heart of the Roman world. God's providence solves the problem. How do you preserve a Jewish nation in a time of famine so that they can thrive and grow and inherit their land? Answer, you get a boy named Joseph, you sell him into slavery by the evil intentions of his brothers, sold to Potiphar, let him interpret dreams for the king, which leads to him becoming the, the prime minister of Egypt. And then your problem will be answered by God's providence. And he'll say to his brothers who sold him into slavery, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Behold, the overruling, reversing hand of our God. And so, listen, if God can take the worst thing that ever happened, the crucifixion of his son at the hands of evil men, and he can bring the greatest good out of it, the salvation of mankind, don't you think he can take your problem and bring about good if he can take the worst thing that have happened, the crucifixion of the Son of God, and bring salvation of it, I think he can reverse your problems. So as I close, let me just say this. Be comforted. This is how we should respond to this. Be comforted in trials. Look for God's providence. Observe it all the time. Be aware of it. Be comforted knowing that these aren't just mere coincidences. In God's hands, they're being used for your good. When you find yourself in dangerous circumstances or troubling days, when you feel as if you've fallen under Haman's edict, read the book of Esther and consider God's providential care and be comforted. His silence is not absence. 
And don't only be comforted, but be courageous. Take some action. Courageous and obedient. Be courageous and obedient. You have been raised up for such a time as this. You live in this community, rubbing shoulders with these people. You have this job. You have these children. You've been raised up for this moment. Be obedient. Do the right thing. Knowing that God's sovereign and working all things together shouldn't make us complacent. It should put steel in our backs and make us go out and take risks and obey and speak up and intervene and be bold because God's working all things together for good. Why wouldn't we be bold? Why wouldn't we be courageous? Why wouldn't we be obedient people? God's working all things together for our good and His glory. Go out and serve Him with these things in mind. Father, we're thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ, our great King, our Lord, our Savior, the great Lion of Judah, who is always at work. He works all things together for our good and glory. Lord Jesus, you're upholding all things by the word of your power. You're carrying history forward. Help us to remember that we are kids of the king and that we can trust you. We can lean on you. We can be taking risks and be bold for you. Help us to see your providential hand in all things. And so we praise you for your deliverance and your reversals that you can even take the worst of things and make them work for our good and your glory. Help us to not run from you in the trial, but to, to lean into you and trust you to use that trial for our good. We praise you, God of Esther, God of the Lord Jesus Christ, God of Great Adventure Church. We praise you for your providential care. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.